I'm Cassidy Hall. I am Kevin Johnson. I'm Carl McCollman, and we are Encountering Silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by listeners like you. Please visit www.patreon.com slash encountering silence. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash encountering silence. To learn how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all-too-noisy world. Just about every week on Encountering Silence, between Cassidy and Kevin and me, one of us, if not all three of us, will make an allusion to a poem or a poet. It might be a very well-known poet like Mary Oliver or Thomas Merton, or it could be somebody not as well-known but who deserves to be well-known, for example, Irene Zimmerman. But one of the things that the three of us discovered fairly early in our friendship and in the development of this podcast was that we are all three poetry geeks. So when we were reflecting together on a topic for this episode, I mentioned, let's do an episode on poetry. And immediately both Kevin and Cassidy said, right, and it will last about 200 hours, won't it? The fact of the matter is (laughs) that when we talk about the intersection of silence and poetry, we are talking about a topic that is almost as vast as the topic of silence itself. So I hope that our conversation today could be seen as kind of a literary hors d'oeuvre, an opportunity for us just at this particular moment, almost like a snapshot, that each one of us is going to share a poem or a poet that we have found speaks to our encounter with silence, not in any kind of an exhaustive way, but almost as a touchstone to invite each of us into the vast world of poetry, the beauty of poetry, and how poetry can, in many ways, usher us into the encounter with silence. So... I'm going to put Cassidy in the hot seat first. Cassidy, do you have a particular poem or poet that you would like to reflect on? All right. I love the hot seat. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. All of us have mentioned Mary Oliver from time to time. And Mary Oliver has been a companion of sorts for me in various times of my life. And in particular, on the topic of grief and loss and and the ability to transform that into attention and loving the world more deeply and more sincerely. There's a book I read once a year that she wrote titled Thirst, and it's a small collection of poems. And it's the first book that she wrote that I'm aware of, at least after the loss of her partner of over 40 years. And I weep through that book about once a year and even in the front of it, I, I write the date when I when I read it that particular year. And the last three years, I think I've read it from the Redwoods Monastery in my room. But the poem, 
instead that I would like to share is not from that. It's actually from her book titled Blue Horses. And the title of the poem is called The Fourth Sign of the Zodiac. And this was written around 2012 when she was diagnosed with lung cancer. And she she later was treated and got, got a clean bill of health. But in this collection, this for, The Fourth Sign of the Zodiac is a four-part poem that kind of talks about loss, um, talks about survival, talks about, again, that, that turning of, that turning of a, of agony and pain and suffering into attention and the, a deeper longing and love and adoration of the world. And we, as we all know, Mary Oliver so eloquently adds so much nature to her poetry. And I, I know all of us love that too. So, so this is the fourth sign of the Zodiac. One, why should I have been surprised? Hunters walk the forest without a sound. The hunter strapped to his rifle, the fox on his feet of silk, the serpent on his empire of muscles, all move in a stillness, hungry, careful, intent, just as the cancer entered the forest of my body without a sound. Two, the question is, what will it be like after the last day? Will I float into the sky or will I fray within the earth or a river remembering nothing? How desperate I would be if I couldn't remember the sun rising if I couldn't remember the trees, rivers, if I couldn't even remember, beloved, your beloved name. Three, I know you never intended to be in this world, but you're in it all the same. So why not get started immediately? I mean, belonging to it. There's so much to admire, to weep over, and to write music or poems about. Bless the feet that take you to and fro. Bless the eyes and the listening ears. Bless the tongue, the marvel of taste. Bless touching. You could live a hundred years. It's happened. Or not. I'm speaking from the fortunate platform of many years, none of which I think I ever wasted. Do you need a prod? Do you need a little darkness to get you going? Let me be urgent as a knife then, and remind you of Keats, so single of purpose and thinking for a while, he had a lifetime. Four. Late yesterday afternoon, in the heat, all the fragile blue flowers in bloom and the shrubs in the yard next door had tumbled from the shrubs and lay, wrinkled and fading in the grass. But this morning, the shrubs were full of blue flowers again. There wasn't a single one on the grass. How, I wondered, did they roll back up to the branches, that fiercely wanting, as we all do, just a little more of life? Wow. So powerful. So one thing I love about that poem is the way it points to the unknown. It points to the silence. It points to everything beyond. But she does it in a way that is handling this diagnosis with such grace and power and strength in, in naming these things. You know, I love when she rolls through, you know, bless the feet that take you to and fro, bless touching, bless the tongue, the marvel of taste. Uh, and again, you know, this is her response to this diag- this cancer diagnosis at the time. So I just love the way that it, it points to everything deeper, everything beyond, and, and even death, you know, and the silence of death, which is certainly a topic that we have yet to tackle, but for another episode, I suppose. I think what's so powerful about that is that she, it's so real because this isn't floating 
untouching everything. Like you said, she's touching everything. The whole poem is completely grounded in body, whether mm-hmm. it's uh, the, mm-hmm. the cancer invading her body. Uh, everything's the body. Everything's touching. Everything's. She says, "What would it be like in death if I can't? If I couldn't remember the sky? If I couldn't? You know, everything's about a lived reality. It's not a fake thing. Even memory has some sense of a tangible quality to it. And I, and I love too because the title just is so. I love poets mm-hmm. who who play mm-hmm. with me because I mean, <laughs> like the fourth sign of the zodiac, and and is your and you were saying that, and I'm thinking to myself, well, I don't know, and I'm typing up what is the fourth, and it comes up fourth sign of the zodiac is cancer, and I'm like, of yep. course, yep. <laughs> of yep. course, yep. <laughs> I'm like, she's talking about cancer. That's it's just uh, it's wonderful. Correct me if I'm wrong, Casty, but she doesn't explicitly mention silence in this poem, does she? She does not. No, but it's interesting because it's just a poem that's always taken me into silence. Well, and I think that it does say a lot about silence. And the first thing that it says is that silence is embodied. Silence is natural. Yes. And that, you know, that when we are kind of anchored in this skin, anchored in these feet that carry us to and fro, that is where we become silent. That is where, where we find silence. That's also where we, where we find death. Death is the final embodied act. And it's very interesting, you know, and I, I want to hear Kevin's poem before we get to mine, but my poem is very ethereal and mm. almost, almost otherworldly. So I'm really mm. glad we, we began with Mary Oliver because she is so, you know, so incarnate, so earthy. Right. Well, I mean, and maybe that makes a perfect transition because we talk about providential and grace. If we start off with the embodied, my poem walks toward the ethereal, but it starts in the embodied. So it, it's really, it's so it's really funny. So like we're gonna, we're silence does its own work. <laughs> silence has sifted its way into our poems. My poem, when we decided we were going to do this topic and we said we're going to do poetry, we've, and we've talked about poetry before on this podcast, as you said before, we've had episodes about it, at least it's in each episode or we've, or we've had something very specific about it. So to hear us talking about this snapshot, the snapshot that popped up for me today, as soon as we said we're going to do this, this poem came to mind. And the poem is Utopia. And it's by a Polish poet. It's a, a Polish poet who won the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1996. And I'm going to butcher the Polish, and I apologize to all the Polish people. But the name, as best I can say it, is Wisława Szymborska is the name of the poet. Wisława Szymborska. Wow. So this, this is the, the poem, Utopia. Island where all becomes clear. Solid ground beneath your feet. The only roads are those that offer access. Bushes bend beneath the weight of proofs. The tree of valid supposition grows here, with branches disentangled since time immemorial. The tree of understanding, dazzlingly straight and simple, sprouts by the spring called Now I get it. The thicker the woods, the vaster the vista, the valley of obviously. If any doubts arise, the wind dispels them instantly. 
Echoes stir unsummoned and eagerly explain all the secrets of the worlds. On the right, a cave where meaning lies. On the left, the lake of deep conviction. Truth breaks from the bottom and bobs to the surface. Unshakable confidence towers over the valley. Its peak offers an excellent view of the essence of things. For all its charms, the island is uninhabited, and the fate footprints scattered on its beaches turn without exception to the sea, as if all you can do here is leave and plunge never to return into the depths, into unfathomable life. Mm. Wow. And so this poem is, I always come back to it because it's, it's, if you see it on the page, it's wonderful. All the capital letters of like the tree of valid supposition is all capitalized. <laughs> the tree of understanding, the valley of the obvious, uh, mm. the deep, the, the, the lake of deep conviction. And this, and the name of the poem is Utopia, which means nowhere. And so mm. there's no such place that where there's complete conviction and complete truth and everything's ordinary and organized and everything that, that no one lives here. Every it's uninhabited and that we turn to the sea and where do we go? We go into the sea uh, and that's into unfathomable life. That's really the true living, Uh, not the place of certainty, but the, the place Mm. of wonder and doubt and unsurety. Mm. Um, Mm. What was the line? The thicker the woods, the so yeah. So the beginning, yeah. So vaster the vista, yeah. So the, at the beginning is the thicker the woods, the vaster the vista, and then mm. there's a colon, and it's and what's the vista? What's the vista you're looking onto? The vaster the vista, uh, the colon is the valley of obviously. Yeah, <laughs> I loved that line. Oh, <laughs> that's just well, great. And I, your introduction was so spot on, Kevin, because again, you know, you have all this kind of lovely, you know, almost pastoral imagery. Right. Mm. And yet he's also talking about the psyche, the soul, the, the spirit, right. that mm-hmm. this idea that the, the, was it the vast vista, the vista of vastness, the valley of obviousness, all, you know, all of this kind of stuff is within us. And the, the the certainty, the not knowing, whatever it might be, and so we, you know, we carry the forest and the trees and the the horizon and the sky and the ocean and the waterfalls. We carry all of that in us, right? And that in that carrying, and we can talk about we we have we have the encounter with nature, you know, with a capital N. And then we discover that nature is within us. And then that nature forms us. I don't know, I'm kind of, I'm kind of rambling now, but, but for, for whatever reason, you know, this idea that, okay, I'm drawing a blank, guys. No, (laughs) no, you're not. No. no. And (laughs) I just want a blink because you're, 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 you're hitting it spot on and it's taking you to that place. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And uh, yeah, the, the embodiment in nature and our natural, as Maggie Ross says in, in Pursuit of Silence, our natural milieu, like, right. you know, silence is, it's just so organic. Right. And so all these beautiful natural ways of, you know, as Mary Oliver talked about being in the body and as 
I don't know how to say your poet's name, Kevin. It's Viswava, and 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 it's a woman. Viswava is a is a female. Okay. So just okay. So, um, and how she began to take that and move it further into the mystery and further into the the unknown. Well, I, I shouldn't say further, but differently. So right, 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 I suppose, right. right? And yeah. and I was thinking before we talked about Carl Rahner in the last episode when Carl was talking about. His famous quote, the Christian of the future will be a mystic or will not be at all. And Karl Rahner in his uh, book, Foundations of Christian Faith, which is this, talk about the opposite of poetry for a moment. It's completely (laughs) systematic. It's completely philosophical and deeply jargon-like, but he's a, a Jesuit and he is trying to get at this mystery. And what's really funny is this, the way this poem ends, where Everybody leaves the island of certainty to go off into mystery, swim in the sea of mystery. And Rahner, at the end of the introduction to this this systematic theology, writes, he's talking about basically the idea of mystery, and that there's this mystery in the depths of each human being, and that we know that there's this depths. But and he and he says, in the ultimate depths of the, his being. Um, men know nothing more surely than their knowledge. That is, what is called knowledge in everyday parlance is only a small island. So what we call knowledge is mm-hmm. only a small island. And it's, and it's on a vast sea that has not been traveled. And so the ultimate question, which reminds me of this poem, he says, the ultimate question is this, what do you love more? The, so, the small island of your so-called knowledge or the sea of infinite mystery. Mm. And so that's exactly what I think this poem always reminds me is uh, Carl Rahner is a, is a wonderful thinker is saying that ultimately, if you want to know who you really are, you're going to have to leave the island of certainty, which is really an island, as this poet says, it's, it doesn't exist. Utopia. There's no certainty that way. Mm-hmm. Dive back into the sea of mystery. Our conversation will return after this brief moment of silence. Please take a breath and be present in the silence. Which reminds me of Thomas Aquinas and the idea that everything he wrote was but straw. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Deeply systematic, deeply intelligent, so well thought out. Most people consider it like he nailed it and, and he worked so hard and then he had his vision of God and he said, just burn it. It's not, it doesn't, it doesn't match up. Don't just burn it. So, Carl. Yes. How about you? How about you? Who is your uh, poet or your poem for the, today? For today, I've got the British author Evelyn Underhill, who is not as well known as a poet. She's known more as an authority on Christian mysticism and Christian spirituality. Right. But early, early in her career, she did write two rather slender volumes of poetry, 
This particular one is called Eminence, and it came out in 1912. So it was just a year after her her most well-known book, her book on mysticism, was published. And this poem is called Supersensual. When first the busy, clumsy tongue is stilled, save that some childish, stammering words of love the coming birth of man's true language prove, when, one and all, the wistful, seeking senses are fulfilled with strange, austere delight. When eye and ear are inward turned to meet the flooding light, the cadence of thy coming quick to hear, when on thy mystic flight, thou swift yet changeless, herald breezes bring to scent the heart's swept cell with incense from the thurible of spring, the fragrance which the lily seeks in vain. When touch no more may tell the verities of contact unexpressed and deeplier pressed to that surrender which is holiest pain, we taste thy very rest. Ah, then we find folded about by kindly nurturing night, instinct with silence, sweetly musical, the rapt communion of the mind with mind. Then may the senses fall, vanquished indeed, nor dread that this their dear defeat be counted sin. For every door of flesh shall lift its head because the king of life is entered in. Hmm. Beautiful. The first time I read that, I thought it was it was very Neoplatonic that yeah. it was kind right. of the you right. know the, the the flight from matter. Right. But mm-hmm. I think she's she's too clever for that. I think I think the the title of the poem is a pun, mm-hmm. because I think what she's saying is that the mystical life is almost paradoxically the flight from matter and the flight to matter. Exactly. Mm. You know, and, and, and the thing is, you know, this, this, this volume of poem is, is called Eminence, a book of verses. And the first poem in the collection is Eminence, which is one of her best known poems. But the last poem in the book is Transcendence. Mm-hmm. So even this entire collection of poetry is kind of holding that paradox together. Mm-hmm. Mm. So this idea that silence is embodied and yet silence is paradoxically also immaterial that right. you know sound that there's a there's you know there's an energy to sound the vibration of sound is a form of energy and we know today thank you uh, albert einstein of the essential unity between matter and energy but then silence takes us to a place, I mean, absolute silence, and we know there's no such thing as absolute silence, at least not on this side of eternity. But, but silence takes us beyond the energy of sound, beyond the vibration of sound. Mm-hmm. So there is a transcendent quality to silence. Right. right. And yet there's, again, there's no perfect silence, just like, you know, or if there is, it's like absolute zero. There's no life there. Right. Right. So, so to encounter silence, to experience silence, to encounter silence implies embodiment, implies materiality. So it's this interesting kind of time before eternity, matter before emptiness, 
spirit before the divine, before the silence of eternity. I don't know. You know, no, imminence before I'm just transcendence. Kind of yeah. Imminence before transcendence. I, I, I yeah. agree. I, I think what happens here is uh, there's a lot going on, but I get the sense, I, I completely agree with your read there of that poem and what she's doing. And you were saying, I thought this poem was Neoplatonic, and I always laugh all the time. I was like, Neoplatonists aren't, Plat- aren't, aren't Neoplatonists. Like, I find, <laughs> like, it's funny, like, we label something as bad, like, don't be X, and like, don't be Platonic. And then you read Plato, and the critique you're giving Plato, I'm like, Plato's not doing that. Like, that's a, that's a caricature of his work. And, and it's the same thing here. I think it's a, there's a, a very good, careful thing. I don't want us to have this flight away from the body. However, you're, I think you're doing a great job, Carl, uh, and you know she does as well in the poem, is that this really isn't a flight away from the body. I always say to people that silence isn't a fleeing from the world, it's a fleeing to the world. It's actually getting out of the, your ideas about the world and actually showing up and being present in the world, which gets us right back to Cassidy's poem of, of being embodied, that if you really do that, that's going to be the silence. And, and for me, it feels... The, the word transcendent is problematic just because it makes it sound like you're leaving something behind. When, when really, I love, you know, again, Cassidy brought it up before from Maggie Ross's, uh, her comment in In Pursuit of Silence. It's really all it is. It's a shift of awareness, a shift of consciousness away mm-hmm. from self-focus and my words and I, my ideas. That drops away. And then you're deeply mm-hmm. embodied. You're in the world. You're encountering somebody face to face. You're with that animal. You're with the wind. You're with the music, whatever it is. And that feels like something else. It's a shift. You've transcended yourself and you've mm-hmm. gone over. But that doesn't mean you've run away from the world. You're actually present to the world for the very first time, whereas you were trapped in your head before talking to yourself about the world. You're the, here's my problems. Here's my this. Oh, I love the smell of that. And you're having all this conversation. Drop the conversation and just be with the world. That's what I loved about all these poems seem to have that. Even the po- my poem is don't get trapped in the world of certainty. Drop it and go swim in the sea of unfathomable mystery, you know, unfathomable life. Mm. Go there. Yeah. You know? So often I, I realize I'm reading poetry right when I am unable to grasp it. Those moments where your mind is boggled, you know, just like we're all saying, you know, it takes you into the silence. But I'm sure you guys have found yourself also reading poems and you just kind of start laughing. Yes. <laughs> and you're reading it right. But another another quick note I want to just kind of bring up and maybe even read the, one of these at the end. But I recently read Jan Richardson's book of blessings called Circle of Grace. Okay. And she has a couple other books of blessings. And, you know, of course, John O'Donohue has, you know, uh, books of blessings and whatnot. In fact, one I'd like to read is called uh, For Equilibrium, A Blessing. But anyway, sometimes it's nice for me to read these, which I also view as poems, Mm -hmm. but these blessings in a way that doesn't quite take me to that mind-boggling space, but kind of offers a sense of comfort in a different way, Mm. if that makes sense. You Mm. know, I think they can still take us into the silence when there's not something entirely mind-boggling about them. But even in this John O'Donohue poem, there are some things that kind of make me snicker a little bit. So, Mm. Mm. That's it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So it's for equilibrium, a blessing. 
Like the joy of the sea coming home to shore, may the relief of laughter rinse through your soul. As the wind loves to call things to dance, may your gravity by light be lightened by grace. Like the dignity of moonlight restoring the earth, may your thoughts incline with reverence and respect. As water takes whatever shape it is in, so free may you be about who you become. As silence smiles on the other side of what's said, may your sense of irony bring perspective. As time remains free of all that it frames, may your mind stay clear of all it names. May your prayer of listening deepen enough to hear in the depths the laughter of God. I always just love that one. Mm. It just means so much to me, and it's mind—it's mind-boggling in a different way. It's. Yeah. It's beautiful in a different way, but all of these are, all of these are. Cassidy, you reminded me of a book that I just bought last week when my wife and I were in Asheville. It's called The Poems of Jesus Christ. <laughs> and it's, it's a new translation of the gospel. But what the author has done is he's taken like all the parables and, and the, the, you know, Jesus is teaching and he has set them as poetry. Interesting. That's an interesting choice. And yeah. so, yeah, so it's it's really just flipping through it. I haven't really perused it yet, but just flipping through it in, in the bookshop. A, a shout out to Malaprop's bookstore in Asheville, which is where I bought it. Um, All right. It's, yeah, a wonderful independent bookstore. It's like Christ's words really, really come alive. And so, for example, The Dilemma of Two Masters. No house slave can serve two masters. Either he will hate one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. It's a poem, you know? Yeah, right. It's just a very right. simple little poem. Or, or this one. The kingdom of God is not coming in an observable way, nor will people say, look, it is here, or it is there. For look, the kingdom of God is inside you. Mm -hmm. And and so what what I think is beautiful about poetry is that if we learn to read poetically, even we read prose differently. Yeah, absolutely. I wish and the maybe, I wish the translation of that those poems, because anytime you see the word look, nine times out of ten the word is behold. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And if because yeah. because right there, if you put in "behold the kingdom of heaven," because in in the beholding, there you are. You're in the kingdom. Mm -hmm. Look mm -hmm. is 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 definitely self conscious. You're doing something. Beholding is not so. And beholding is more embodied. Exactly. Completely the point. Exactly. <laughs> well, I I have one more question, and I I I want to just kind of, once again, put casting in the hot spot. Ooh. But I was just looking at my, my collection oh, of poetry, poetry books this morning and realized that I have the, just several volumes where silence is in the title. For example, Bonnie Thurston's Practicing Silence mm -hmm. or May Sarton, The Silence Now or another mm -hmm. one also by May Sarton, as it turns out, Halfway to Silence. So... I'm curious, Cassidy, and, and Kevin, you can jump into, why do you think poets keep returning to silence? What, what do you think 
is going on here? Why, why is there this deep intuitive relationship between silence and, and poetry? So my mind immediately went to musicians. And much like musicians use notes, poets are the composers of words in some sense. They pay such attention to the space between. I think more than we do in typical writing, typical everyday language, they heed the mystery. They uh, listen to the offbeat and they use it. You know, they know how to harness it. They know how to hold it open-handed. And I think that's really what sets poetry and poets apart from your everyday writing is that it's a lot, maybe I would dare to say closer to silence than any other writing is. Absolutely. I, uh, I, I agree. totally agree. Yeah. Totally agree. Yeah. I, I think in Jane Hirschfeld's book, uh, as the nine gates of poetry, you know, that she completely points that out, that it's, there's a kind of consciousness that a poet has to have that uses the entire body, mind, the whole thing to be able to get at this, exactly as Cassidy's saying. And I also think there's something here, too, that I, I think poets, all of them, no matter, it doesn't really matter their belief system or where they come from, but I think they all see silence as sacred ground because it's from the silence the poems come. So you honor and worship. You know, it, the Poetry has always kind of said, like, hey, it's the muses, or hey, it's a daemon, you mm -hmm. know, or hey, this is a gift mm -hmm. from the gods. Like, this is where does poetry come from? I didn't make this. I write poetry. I, I've taken poetry classes, and I, I love to do it. And I need to practice way more to get better at it. But I remember taking a poetry class and being with the professor who is a, a fabulous poet of, uh, uh, and a friend of mine. And, and she would say, you know, we talk about it on the page, what the poem looks like. And, and everyone knows if, if you write a good poem, you don't feel like you wrote it. You feel like mm -hmm. it was given to you. You know, you like, where did these words mm -hmm. come from? Why did I say that phrase? Where did that? It just seems to be gifted. It's graced. And so it really does. I think poets honor this, that creative space in order. That's where the words come from. And that's where the words go to. And so they want to point back there. So both of your comments make me think about one last poem, and that is Edna St. Vincent Millay's Ode to Silence which is simply too long to read for this, this episode, but I would commend anyone who's interested to look for it online. You can find it online or you can find it in her you know, collected poems. But what she does there is she, she depicts silence as more or less the 10th muse. It begins, I but she, your other sister and my other soul, Grave silence, lovelier than the three loveliest maidens. What of her? And then she begins to speak to the muses. Mm -hmm. So it's obvious that, that that's who she's saying is the sister of. Is the, the silence is the sister of the muses. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, and so it just goes on and on. It's just, you know, it's just this beautiful, very romantic poem. And then it ends, you know, she says to the, to the muses, lift up your lyres, sing on. But as for me, I seek your sister, whither she is gone. <laughs> there it is, you Lovely. know, that part of the vocation of the poet is to seek, 
to seek silence, the sister of the muse. That's right. Whether she is gone. Mm. Oh, thank you again. It's always a delight to to chat with you two. Yeah, same here. And it's always, always great to talk about poetry. Yes, yes. We will have, I suspect, many more of these episodes yeah, to come. Absolutely. All right. All right. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Carl. Thank you for listening to the Encountering Silence podcast. If you enjoy our ongoing conversation about the beauty of silence and its meaning in our lives, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or at our website, EncounteringSilence.com. You can subscribe to our email list at our website. Connect with us on social media, on Twitter at Silence Podcast, or on Facebook at Encountering Silence. And please visit www.patreon.com slash encountering silence. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash encountering silence to become a patron of this podcast. Your financial support will allow us to continue creating new episodes and spreading the message of how vital silence is to our social, spiritual, and physical well-being. Thank you. Thank you.